Wow. I feel a little bit cheated because when I grew up, they didn't have shoes that every time you took a step, the lights flashed. That is the coolest thing. I know all you grown-ups really think it's cool, too. I want to say this, too. Um, you know, we seem to have a growing, well, a growing church, but we obviously also have a growing children's ministry and a growing nursery in particular. I think there wasn't, it wasn't that uh, many weeks ago that we had 13 little ones in the nursery. 13, count them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 13. And um, so that's a good place for you to pray. But I also want to say this to you. If, you uh, if, if there's something in you that says, you know what, it's part of my responsibility to help care for little people, please, we could use the help. So um, talk to the, to the leaders and um, just get involved. And maybe just one Sunday a month or something like that. Just some way just help us love on kids that need it. So, okay, today is the 14th. You know me, let's dip into Proverbs before we get into our message. Proverbs to the 14th, here's a good one. Uh, verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know, that scripture has so many times spoken to me personally where I thought, you know, I've got an idea, here's what I should do. And uh, if I could see where it's going to lead me to, it's not going to go to the point of life that I want it to go. So that's a great, great one. Today, um, we, we wrapped up our series last week um, on uh, staying in love, and uh, we've had a lot of requests for the, for the messages. I want to let you know they're free and they're online. You can get them at, at crossroadsfoursquare.net. Just download them there. So they're all available, and... Um, you can get them anytime you need to. But we're starting on something new. And uh, the, the title of the series is Big Idea, so what's the big idea? And uh, we're going to be on this for a while. And today I've got something very specific as a kind of a launch, which I'll explain in a couple of minutes. But I want to jump ahead and tell you what I'm planning, um, the big idea for September 11th. The reason is that um, I, I want to be really strategic as a leader and as a pastor, but I also want us to be strategic as a church about that day. That's the day we plan to um, take time in our service to pray over children and, and, and educators. I've just, just ask the Lord's guidance, blessing, and protection uh, as the school year starts. And we kind of picked that day because it's Patriots Day. Everybody can remember there's something about 9-11, right? Yeah, you remember that. So um, the point is that we're having a kids' fun day after, immediately after the service, and, uh, and our theme is we believe in our future. And so it's our hope that people will come, that you'll invite people that would just like to be covered in prayer. And I promise you, we won't embarrass you. I promise you it won't be weird. Um, but I have real strategic plans about the message that day. And um, so as we start the series, I plan that day to wade into the topic that's legitimate, the legitimate reasons that the world doesn't want to have anything to do with the church. I want to talk about the legitimate things, their legitimate beef, and I'm just going to acknowledge them. I'm just going to say, yeah, this is true about us, and um, it's, it ought not be, and uh, if we need to take some lumps, we'll take our lumps, but I think that tucked into that, that scripture and into the, that passage um, is some really good stuff. And while we talk about the truth and we're authentic here, we'll also see the Holy Spirit go to work in people's hearts. Ours, theirs, everybody's. So um, I have intentions about this. I have a big idea about this. God's got a bigger idea. I'm glad about that. And um, so that's uh, coming up on the, um, the 11th. Now, let me take just a second, too, and um, talk about the word church marketing. 
Okay, it's a phrase I don't like. Many of you probably don't like it. If you think that our big fun day, um, if you're concerned that it's an attempt to be marketing the church, I want you to know that's not my philosophy, that we would market, that we have to market something. Um, we'll read in the scriptures today that, that basically Jesus said that he, that, that he adds to the church daily as such as should be saved, that he says that he will build his church. And so um, our belief is that what we're to do is to care for people, to, to, to share the gospel, to tell the truth, to do those kinds of things, and that the, uh, the, the responsibilities for marketing, if there is any such thing, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And um, I think there's a lot of marketing going on in my heart all the time, it seems like. So um, please, um, just, if you're concerned, just come and see what we're doing, and, and um, I'm sure that any questions you have will get resolved that day. But we basically love kids, so that's what we're doing. It's going to be a fun day. We're going to have free pony rides, bounce houses. Um, what's that game? Something in a minute. Something in a Minute to minute to win it to win it to minute. Um, there's there's going to be a live Christian rock band in here for you know for those that can stand the volume. There's um, going to be free hot dogs and caramel no not kettle corn and ca- I mean it's going to be a good good couple of hours right after church. So a good day to make sure you bring guests. Say hey come to our church. That's ah, just another another day at Crossroads. You know free pony rides. Um, <laughs> so anyway so. That's, that's what's going on. I'm looking forward to that day. And uh, next week, we'll have an organized sign-up, and at that point, we'll be asking for help to do different things, you know, to help children get on horses and hand out kettle corn and really tough stuff like that. So next week, we'll talk about that. What do you, um, what do you think about what comes to your mind when um, the subject of church comes up? You know, I mean, or what do you feel? Um, you know, it's, it's possible that what we think of in our mind about church is a, is a, is a distant cry. It's a far cry from what people thought of when they thought about getting together to be with God and to worship back in the first century. Um, because it didn't begin with, there wasn't any institution, there wasn't any liturgy, there wasn't any tradition about it. There, there weren't any Bibles, there weren't any banners, there weren't any bands, there wasn't any else that begins with the letter B. There, wasn't, there weren't any buildings, facilities, staff. There wasn't any hierarchy. There was none of that. It began as a movement. It just began as a movement um, around a very simple idea. A simple idea that, you know, unfortunately the, the church in general tends to focus on only about one time each year, and that's, it focuses upon the resurrection. Now the church was launched around that event in history. The resurrection of Jesus, which you know, just galvanized those first century believers and convinced them that Jesus was just exactly who he said he was. Pretty amazing event, pretty convincing evidence. And uh, so it was that simple event fortified by the eyewitnesses of people. The people that actually saw what was going on, that launched the local church. And from the very beginning, it was based upon that simple, a simple single event. So I want to give you a little bit of background about um, the whole idea of church. Now today, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on history, a little bit of time on um, theology, a little bit of time, quite a little bit of time, actually plowing through some of the Word of God. There's going to be something for all of you in, all, in this, and, um, and we might even take a rabbit trail or two. Um, so just bear with me, and I, I'm kind of setting the ground for something that is going to build up over time, so, so that's what today is going to be all about. If you grew up in the Protestant 
environment or maybe in a Catholic environment or you maybe you grew up and you didn't go to church at all, then today's going to probably fill in some gaps for you about how we, how we got here. My goal for today would be that we would maybe reconsider or possibly reevaluate why we believe we're here if, if, we don't, if we're not already on the same page. Because I think that a correct understanding about the fundamentals, about why the church began and what was going on, will help us later down the road when we decide as a group, when we say, here is the mission of this church family. Here is what it is that the Lord would be calling crossroads to be and to become and to do and, to, and how we should, should appear to the, the community, this community, and how we will care for people. I think we've got to know the bigger picture before we can figure out that, that down. So um, we're going to take a little bit of time on, on history here first. In the Greek New Testament, which was written in Greek, the word church that's all throughout there is actually the Greek word is ekklesia. Ecclesia. And literally it means an assembly or a gathering or a congregation. So throughout the New Testament, when you see the word church, um, it's, uh, it's actually ecclesia. It means congregation, gathering, and assembly. And you'll, you know, you'll read that Jesus launched this assembly, this gathering, this, this, uh, this, this uh, congregation, based upon a very simple idea, simple mission, and a simple fo- focus. But as time went on, something in history went terribly wrong on this, this particular front because this very simple, clear little Greek word, couldn't be any clearer, was transitioned into a different word. And, um, okay, so if, if historically back around 300, year 300, um, the German word Kirsche began to be used, and it was basically of Goth origin. And Kirsche means literally the Lord's house seems related, seems similar, but it's a term for a gathering place. The meaning drifted from a movement based upon an event to a place. Over time, this idea of a gathering of people and which started as a movement trend, transitioned to a place. The new idea became our English word church. Church. So people, right now, it's very common for people to associate the word church with a place, a building. But you and I both actually know that the church is us, right? We actually understand. Not, not, it's, not, it's not the physical people. It's the gathering of the people. It's us as a group. And it's us as not just any group, but it's us as a group focused around an event in history, a movement. Then there's reason for that. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because this very, very simple little English word, um, it, it got re, re, re-understood and um, so many people today now consider it differently. And there's actually not a good relationship. You know, there's, no, there's no good connect, for me at least, between a gathering of people and a place. It's where they gather, but it's not who they are and it's not why they gather. So... Here's, so here's what happened. You have this, this horrible linguistic translation, and it, re, it resulted in some really terrible theology. And before long, the church was located in a building. Didn't, it didn't start at first, but before long, you have churches located in a building. Now, by the way, there's nothing evil about having a church building. Okay? It's, it's practical. It's useful. I believe it's the Lord's will. But, okay, so there, this tradition became, they became a, a church building, which happened before as well. There were temples, 
Okay, so this is not against buildings. But here were some issues. As that transition happened linguistically and theologically, the problem was that whoever controlled the building controlled the church. So if you controlled the building and the church, you also controlled the scripture. So if you controlled the building and the church and the scripture, well, now you have the ability to control the people. Control the building, control the church, control the scripture. Yeah, you control the people. If you can control all that, now you can control the politics. Do you get where this goes? And that's really a lot of the history. Um, hundreds of years, I mean, it's been, there's been a, a huge chunk of history where that's really been a problem. And this disturbing, it's t- disturbing to me, this, 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 this issue is that is instead of distributing the truth throughout the world, which I think is the role of the church, the church became very insider-focused, hierarchical, ritual. And in some cases, it was actually pagan and destructive. There's examples of that. Now, uh, you know, to be sure, there is a thread of the real church that's pretty massive, and it continues today. So, you know, I'm not trying to paint that, well, oh, woe is me. This has all come apart. I'm not saying that, but, but this is in our rearview mirror. This is where we've been. And unfortunately, a lot of the people around us who don't attend church, this is their viewpoint. It's their reality. Church is a place. And it's a place with not so great a history. Fair enough so far? Okay. You know, um, I, th- I think about an, a news article. Somebody emailed me this last week, um, just a link. It was my son, and he had read this article an interview by a pastor in the Netherlands, and I don't remember the name of the denomination, a Christian denomination, um, but he was explaining his position that he doesn't really believe in the afterlife. He doesn't really, in fact, believe in God. He's an atheist pastor of a Christian church, and the story goes on, and it develops that issue and the topic, and in fact, I don't remember the name of the congregation. I wish I could tell you now. A third of the people who pastor in that denomination are atheists. It just shows you that when you get your little wheels off the rails, you might feel like, well, I'm okay, but over time, there's obviously something's gone wrong there. It's just something that just boggles my mind. So I think that's, that, that kind of problem is part of the reason why people today reject the local church and the church in general. But something really good happened eventually. Now, along about that time, the, the New Testament was written in, in Greek, and so uh, if you didn't speak Greek, you could not read the scriptures. And anyway, so we, we, we get to the good news here about the year 1500 or so. A guy named William Tyndale is born. Come on, smile, Bill. <laughs> what is the deal about old photos? It's like nobody smiled for their pictures. It's like, you know, say cheese. You know, you couldn't hold that pose long enough for the painter to get your teeth in there or something. I don't know, but... So he was born just before, before uh, 1494, and he was a pretty smart guy. He was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. And at that time, only the clergy had access to scriptures. Okay? They were trained, and they could read it. But people like you and me, we would just completely be at the mercy of whatever they told us said. Because, I mean, I don't know how many copies of the Bible I have. I have a lot. I'll bet you the average person in here has a lot too. If you've got a phone, you've probably got four in your phone, and you've probably got one on your top of your TV, and you've got the stack somewhere, and you've got the ones you've forgotten. You've got so many. We've got so many copies. Nobody had copies back then. Books were a rarity to begin with. People that could read were a rarity to begin with. But the scriptures themselves were completely in the hands of only the clergy. 
And uh, so here's this educated guy. He looks us over and he reads and gets to be a student of the Word of God. He says, hey, you know, this ought not be. Because people in the past had, had access to the Scripture. This was written to people. It should be available to everybody. So he comes up with this idea, hey, how about if I translate it into English? And um, so he talked with clergy about it, and he talked with King Henry VIII, and they didn't like the idea. What a surprise. They didn't like the idea. Remember all that issue about control? They didn't like the idea, so they said, no, don't think so. So what does he do? He leaves, heads over to Germany, decides he's going to translate it, so he starts working on it. And he does. He starts with the New Testament. And not only does he translate it, but he's, he hooks up with some friends and they actually start printing copies. Now, to be sure, printed copies back then were very expensive, but they were obtainable. And people did have, there were people of means, and so copies started getting out. Um, way less expensive than handwritten. You can imagine how expensive a handwritten. But, so he starts, and there are some very early copies of, of, the, of, of the New Testament and ultimately the whole Bible that got printed and out they got. And um, the people back, back in England weren't too happy about it. The people in authority were just not too happy with what he was doing. And so they said, you ought not to do that. And so they started pursuing him because they wanted to arrest him. He was ultimately uh, betrayed by a friend and arrested. He spent some time in um, house arrest and so forth. Ended up, um, they took him back. And on October 6th of, ni- of 1536, he was tied to the stake, strangled, and burned. He had a bad day. There's not a whole lot of good pictures about what happened here, but this is a bad day in the life of uh, Billy Tyndale. But, um, you know, there, there were some remarkable things. I mean, uh, what a remarkable man to have um, stuck by his guns, to have um, just decided to crash through that power barrier and get the word of God into people's hands. Um, you know, he, he, um, by the time that this was going on, it was kind of like too late. Horses are is already out of the barn. The word of God. In fact, what happened was that the um, the chief clergy and uh, the king were trying to gather up the copies that were out there before they captured him, and they were literally trying to buy up the copies of the Bible that were out there. And they were they were buying up the copies. So of course, the money was going back to Tyndale, and um, he was getting the money from the government, and then he was just printing more Bibles. And I don't know if there's a political lesson in that, if the government can buy its way out of solutions or not, but there was something. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, anyway, hey, it's been tried other times in other places. I'll just say that. So this institutional church started to lose control. It started to lose control because you've heard the axiom that information is power people started to get the Word of God into their own hands. They didn't need to have somebody else tell them what it says or tell them how to live. They were able to read it for themselves for the first time in hundreds of years, for the first time ever in their culture. And the average person could hold a copy of the Scripture. And the way to go, Bill. Way to go, Bill. I appreciate, you know, I think one of the publishing companies that prints some of the Bibles is Tyndale House, and I'm going to guess that that's where they took their name. One day at dinner... Um, Tyndale was having um, dinner with this visiting clergyman and he said to him his intention was that he was going to translate the Bible so that ordinary plowboys would have a better understanding of the word of God than the clergyman had. I mean, he was up in that guy's grill. And um, 
I don't know, is famous for having said that, and I, I just would love to have, you know, fly on a wall. Watch that conversation, because who knows what was going on there. You know, he, he accused the clergy and the, uh, the, the king of manipulating the scriptures, the people, and the church in order to control them, in order to, to, have, to put into a place political policy. He said if it was left up to him, the word of God would be available to everybody. Great idea. Now, I want to um, take a little tiny short sidestep rabbit trail here and point out to you Acts 17.11 because this is an important scripture. This is a reference to the Bereans. They were a people who were known to be students of the word of God. And here's a scripture for you to remember, Acts 17.11. They received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You know, I stand up here and I read the word to you and I tell you how to help, 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 help to, uh, to understand it and so forth and maybe help um, illustrate it. But ultimately, you better be checking me out. You really should be checking out the people that teach the word of God to you. Whether it's the radio or it's something you read in Newsweek magazine. Whether it's, I mean, here, I mean, hopefully, I'm sh- quite certain that I'm, I'm studying the Word of God and giving it to you correctly. But you should, you should become enough of a student of the Word of God that you can check something out. You hear something and it just doesn't quite go down side, you know, doesn't go down smoothly. Not because um, it's just a challenge for you, but because you just don't, just don't see how. That's the time that you go home and you go, okay, I've got to check this out. And if you don't understand, then you talk to me or you talk to whoever was the teacher. But... 1711, they receive the word with all readiness. They're available for the word of God. And search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. One of the things that drove the political leaders crazy about Tyndale's translations was that he didn't take that little word ecclesia and translate it as church, um, as the house of God. Instead, he accurately transcribed it as congregation because that's what the word means. So it was his, I think, attempt to return the New Testament word representing the gathering of God's people back to what it was meant to be and what it started off as in the first century. A growing, multicultural, multi-ethnic, mission-centered movement of people with a very simple message for everybody in the world and it's centered on the most singular, most important event in our history and that's the resurrection. And Tyndale was right. So now Jesus laid a bit of a a framework for this as well, surprisingly enough. Um, So he had this fascinating chat with his his guys, and this is like towards the end. The kind of chat that you and I would not typically have with our friends. He says says to them, hey, out there on the street, who do they say I am? (laughs) You know, it seems arrogant, you know. I mean, there's a good question. This is great that he's doing it. I'm not saying Jesus was arrogant, but if I did it, would that be arrogant? Hey, what are people saying about me? I mean, can you imagine that? You don't do that. We don't talk that way. Here's Jesus. He says, what are they saying about me out there? And he gets some crazy answers. Now, they're, just, they're not saying, here's what we believe. They're just saying, well, here's what, we're, what people out there say about you. Some of them are saying you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. Now, that one always makes me chuckle because, you know, come on. He baptized Jesus. So, like, did he baptize himself? Are they both there at the same time? I mean, how, how did he get there to... Okay, anyway, that's a crazy answer. They thought he might be Elijah. They thought he might be some other prophet, a new prophet. There were lots of answers. Finally, Pete says, hey, hold it. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus 
right to the point. There it is. There's, there's, the, there's the doorway. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah. He calls him by his actual name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't hear this from somebody else, and you didn't think it up with your own intellect. But my Father who is in heaven, he's the one who revealed it to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter. The word literally there is Petros. Petros translated means little rock, or a little fragment of rock, or little chunks of rock, or a little bit of rock. That's what Peter literally means. And I also say to you that you are little rock, and on this rock, different word, Petra, which means big, massive rock, foundational rock, bedrock. Okay, Peter, and on this, you are the little rock, but on this big rock, I will build my church. Now, I went through that little explanation to you for a reason, um, and uh, this is not going to be a diatribe against the Catholic Church, but I want to explain about their theology a little bit. The Catholic Church would say that um, the first pope was Peter, and this would be the text that they would cite. And their suggestion is that, um, that Jesus is saying that, that on this rock, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And if you don't get to what those two words mean, there are, there are two arguments here, or two, two arguments for us to look at. One is he's actually saying a different type of rock. He's not saying that you all will build on. But there's another possibility here. Why would, why would, why would God choose to build his church upon Peter? as opposed to building it upon his son. I mean, there, there, there is an intellectual issue there um, between the two rocks, but there's a spiritual one as well. And I, I, I've, that's, that's why um, I, I bring this to you because I don't think that we need to create some sort of a gulf between us and brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church because I think there are people, there are a lot of Christians in the Catholic Church I think they're a little misguided in a couple of areas of their theology. One of them is the way they look at their pope. Um, to be sure, to be the leader of any denomination is an awesome responsibility, and to shepherd millions of Christians requires, God's hand has got to be on that man. It's got to be on him. But I draw the line when um, it gets to the point of saying that he speaks doctrine. Um, I've, I think that's crossed over a line because I don't believe that's the rock upon which the church is built. I don't believe it was built upon Peter. So I'm kind of detracted there. But, but anyway, so we get back to on this rock, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is the rock. That is the foundation. Let's build on top of that. Jesus said, upon that rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my gathering my assembly, my group of people, my movement, I'm going to build them. And the gates of hell, the gates of death, the power over the grave will not prevail. Death will not be what rules this gathering of people. It will not, it will not rule their todays. It will not rule their tomorrows. Death will be thought of differently because something different is at work here now. I will build my church and hell will not prevail against it. The church was built as the part of a movement. Not around a building, not any of those things. So not too long after this discussion with, uh, with this about rocks and uh, so forth, um, Jesus was crucified. 
and then he rose from the dead. What an amazing thing. After he rose from the dead, historically, he spent about 40 days or so with his followers, and he was seen by a lot of people in the city. And in that time, he laid out his plans for the church, and there are references to it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on some of them, but in one of them you'll find Matthew 20 and 28. You'll hear the Great Commission about go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. At the book of Acts also has a version where he talks about his plans to build the church, and that's kind of where I wanted to spend our time today, um, Acts, in ch- Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. And so he predicts the beginning of the church. So let's just read this together. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were expecting something. And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. A witness is someone who testifies. It's like being in court. That's what this word means. Someone who sees something and tells that truthfully. Someone who will testify to something to me in Jerusalem, which is where you live. That's where you're hanging out. You know this area. Or in all Judea. Okay, our bigger area, we know that. Um, and in Samaria, hmm, not so sure. I don't really like going to Samaria. And to the end of the earth, all of it. Pretty amazing thing Jesus is saying. Here's this man that Rome hated, and they chased him down and crucified him, and he was only talking to roughly about 100 people. And he tells them they're going to be filled with power, and they're going to share as witnesses to the whole world, 100 of them. I mean, it's mind-boggling to the end of the earth. And, you know, they they could have stopped at that point and said, oh, hold up a minute here, Jesus. I got a question for you. You see, there's about 100 of us here, right? I mean, like, do you know how big the whole world is, Jesus? You know, I mean, they could be asking him that question. You know, and good old, you know, know, I, I can't imagine, you know, if that imaginary question was asked, then there would obviously be an imaginary response. That's what you're going to get from me next, okay? So um, I can imagine Jesus saying, what do you mean, asking me how big the world is? Do you really have any idea? I mean, all you know about the world is the Roman world. No, the world is way bigger. There's a place way out there called Rochester, Washington, and you're going to get your tail out there, all the way over there, out of you hundred, you've got to cover a whole lot of territory. Jesus could have been saying those things. It's so much bigger. This whole thing was a huge idea to them. It was a big idea. I mean, we think big, we think we know what big means. They had no concept of what big was. Their idea of the world was big. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. My ideas way exceed the scope and the scale of what your ideas are. They're way, way, way bigger. Bigger than you can see, bigger than you can imagine, bigger than you can ever accomplish on your own. I want to think that characteristic of God through for a minute with you. Because this is not just about how you and I understand the history of the church, but this is a characteristic of God's. He will only call you and me to do things that are bigger than we can accomplish on our own without him. Did you catch that? He will not ask you to do something that you already know how to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. If he has 
given you the capability to be a great mechanic and you have the ability to fix a broken engine, there might be a time that it's in his will that you do that for somebody. Okay, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that when he calls you to something, when he says, hey, we're going to partner together in doing something, he's going to call you to doing something bigger than you can do on your own. Every single time. There's no exceptions to that. He will always call you to something that's bigger than you. And there are good reasons why. He does not want you out there to do it on your own. He does not want you to be able to, to take on some ministry or some, some effort and then later to be able to say, hey, check that out. Look at what I did. He does not want you to go there. That's not good. It's not healthy for you. It's not right and it's not righteous. So he may, you know, he may, you, you have these capabilities, but he expects you to use those. But, but one, you're a part of something bigger than you. You and I are a part of something way bigger than us. I don't know if that overwhelms you. I find peace in it. Because every once in a while, the Lord will just really challenge me in something. And I'll look at it. And it doesn't look like Mount Everest to me. It looks like a black hole to me. You know, it looks like a place that if I step in there, light cannot even escape. How can I possibly succeed at that? That's way bigger than me. Hebrews 11.6 is one of my favorite scriptures because basically it basically says that that, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. Scripture goes on to talk about rewards and diligently seeking God and so forth. But the point is the faith. When you partner with God and it's truly bigger than you, the only way you can do that and keep your sanity <laughs> is because you have faith. Your faith lets you step into something. Two, you're not capable of doing it on your own. But here's the good part. Number three, God is going to accomplish his plans. He will. God has never failed at anything. You won't find an example of his failure anywhere in scripture. He has never failed. So what it is he's calling you to, he fully intends for the two of you to succeed at it. He fully expects that. I, um, I want you to, to realize something that God can do it without you. <laughs> Okay, God could get through without Terry, I suppose, I suppose. But he doesn't want to. That's not his way. It's not why he created you. He didn't create you to not be involved with you. He didn't create you because he doesn't love you. He created you, and you are a critical plan, part of his plan. So when there is something that he's calling you to, he's got some grand thing going on, you're a critical part of it. Anyway, it's a partnership. When his resurrection gets so far down into you that it becomes a part of you and you realize what, what the church is going, what's going on with the church. You, you start to realize that his promise is way bigger, way bigger. And now we're talking about why that group was gathering that day. The, 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 the truth of the resurrection had really gotten down into their souls. And that's the reason we gather, the reason we assemble, why we, we congregate. Now, I know that sometimes we lack some understanding and we lack... Um, confidence and faith. And that's, you know, it happens to us. It just, we do. Last week I preached about filling in the gap. Staying in love, right? There's a gap between what you're expecting and what the people around you sometimes do and then we decide what to put in that gap. Remember we talked about that? And, and um, putting in that gap, you 
My signs are still here. You assume, can I have those? <laughs> Just happen to be here. You assume the worst. We put something in there. We assume the worst or we believe the best. Remember my silly signs? You said, put the signs down, Terry. You're done with the signs. <laughs> so this last week, Lisa and I um, had some interactions with some people that um, are very close to us. And um, there were some expectations that we had that reasonable or not, they were what we were thinking. And um, a gap formed. <laughs> a pretty significant, um, heart-rending, challenging gap formed in our hearts. And um, overnight was an interesting, one night this last week was an overnight for uh, interesting for us because our hearts were really broken, really hurt and broken. And I'm not going to go into all the detail. It would be really wrong for me to do that. And then the next morning, I got up early, and, and I'm not kidding you. I did not hear an audible voice. But I know the Lord was speaking to me. He said, hey, Tara, were you at church last Sunday? <laughs> and what are you sticking in that gap? And I started to think that through. And I started to um, hear my own words echoing in, in my ears and I had a choice to make. I had a choice to make. You have a choice to make. We have all these choices to make. Jesus says this, this prophecy in Acts 1. He says, you will be witnesses of me. This, I believe, is one of the most profound prophecies in the entire word of God. And you know, here's why. You and I are living examples of that prophecy coming true today. You are here as an example of this prophecy. You are here as a living testimony, witnesses of the Lord today. Jesus made this prophecy, and here you are. And what are you going to do with it? So here, anyway, we get down to opening day of the church. Back to our 120 people there in Jerusalem. And um, now about another two weeks later, something else really amazing happens. And as we know this as Pentecost, and now there are people there from all over the world. Um, there is a uh, Jewish holiday at work here, and they have the Passover, and they have what's called the Shabbat. And uh, 50 days after the Passover, they go through this whole process of, the, of what's called the counting of the Omer, and then the Omer is a unit of measurement. And 49 days in a row, they measure out a certain amount of barley, and then on the 50th day, it's wheat. And, and the point is that Pentecost occurs after... Um, Pentecost basically means 50th day. And so the devout, the most devout of the Jews are in Jerusalem. They're there when Jesus is crucified. They're there when he's resurrected. And a lot of them see the guy. A lot of them were there before um, the Passover. They get into the city before the Passover. And I don't, I don't, I don't remember um, the, the specific numbers, but I think that Jerusalem at the time probably had a population of 70,000, 80,000 people. But that during the Passover, the population was swollen to maybe two or 300,000 people. That's, that's not the little farm village we picture in the Christmas scene, is it? But it's this, it's this huge, huge metropolis at this point. A lot of devout people are there, and they're there for this whole time. And a lot of them see Jesus. A lot of them were there, and now we're, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but, but there's all these people present, and then on this one day, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up, and all these people, uh, these followers, they come out of this meeting, and all of a sudden, they're, 
they're saying the praises of God in other languages. They're speaking in tongues, in other languages. And all of these people from different parts of the world are hearing these people speak their home language. Okay? And they're going, wow, hey, this guy knows my language. And then another guy says, no, no, wait a minute, He's, this guy's speaking my language, and it's language after language after language. It's this miraculous moment of these people uh, speaking, and they're amazed and confounded, and they start figuring, what is going on here? Okay, so Acts 2. Uh, both Jews and, and the converse of Ju- Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. They're drunk. And Peter, Little Rock, mindful of the Big Rock, jumps to his feet and he steps up to share, and this is the opening day of the church. Here comes the first sermon <laughs> ever in a church. Now, I want to stop for a second and take a rabbit trail. This is admittedly a complete rabbit trail. Um, and I've got this com- complicated slide to put up here, and so I don't want to spend too much time, but for some of you who really like cool stuff that shows up in the Word of God, here's something for you. Um, okay, so this is a difficult chart to understand, but let me explain what you're looking at here. In the center section where it says Passover and Exodus, that's, from top to bottom, that's describing the time that the Jews were freed from Egypt. And the right hand in the purple, that's the Passover and the resurrection. That's the 50 days, same time period. These are both 50-day time periods. They both start um, at Passover, and they both end at Pentecost. So you could take the two events, and they layer right over the top of each other on the calendar, on the Jewish calendar. They're both the handiwork of God. One of them happened about 3,500 years ago from today. One of them happened, not today, today, but about 3,500 years ago. And the other one happened a couple thousand years ago. So God is showing his hand here and his consistency, consistency in a couple of different places. And I think that's pretty cool. Look at the parallels. So his big idea, this is God's big idea. The, the first Passover in Exodus, which is where um, the Jews were freed from Egypt. You've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? Okay, so... Um, The price for that freedom, the freedom of their life, was Egypt's firstborn. In the second Passover and resurrection, that second 50-day time stretch, the price was God's firstborn. The prize in the first one was freedom in life. The prize in the second one was eternal life. They were both a pace of 50 days exactly. Exactly. These are not approximate. These are exact counts. The promise in the first one was God's covenant. He said, you, I have chosen you. You are my people. Here are, here's my part. Here's your part. And he hands them the Ten Commandments. Came on the 50th day after Passover. The promise in um, <clears throat> the second one is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, wait. And, and the helper will come. And with great power. And this, the promise is the Holy Spirit. The focus between these two is the first one was what we do. We were handed out the Ten Commandments. Here's what you do to be right with God. The focus the second time was what God does to provide salvation. And then the point of these two is obvious. The first one was about carnal life, and the second one was about the power, about living in power and eternal life. Now, admittedly, that has nothing to do with the text of today's message, but it was a pretty cool thing to study this out and see. For, student, for people who like to find these hidden nuggets in the Word of God, you never see this stuff unless you get in there and dig around some. When you start to su- study, what's the purpose for the Passover and the Shabbat and what was going on here? Um, I'm not going to go off down that rabbit trail. So let's go back to Peter. 
the little rock, he stands up and he says this, and here we are in Acts 2, and we're just about done here. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now he quotes from the book of Joel, a prophecy Joel made. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so Peter has started his sermon the first day, the opening day of the church. And he's on the topic of saying, this is about salvation. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourself also know. A lot of these people saw it. They saw him healing people. They saw him raising people from the dead. They saw him. Maybe they were some of the ones that had the picnic from the baskets and the loaves and the fish. Maybe, maybe some of these people were the actual recipients. These people, Peter's pointing out, hey, Jesus came. He was called by God. He did miracles. You saw it. Now he's talking, Peter's talking to a whole big crowd here. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This, verse 32, thus this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. These people saw it. It wasn't like four people went and found an empty tomb and told the rest. Jesus was seen by hundreds of people. It'd be like here. Okay, so you, um, you're a school teacher at Rochester High School, and maybe you didn't see Jesus. You know, you saw him executed. But the science teacher comes to school one day and says, you don't ever guess who I just saw. And you know this guy. Or maybe you work at Home Depot, and the guy that's the plumbing department says, hey, Jesus was just outside. I just saw him and talked with him. He's alive. The point is, is that so many people saw Jesus that you probably, either you saw him yourself or you knew somebody who did. This city was upside down. Jerusalem was upside down at this moment. And Peter's saying, hey, this guy was called by God. He did miracles which you saw. He rose from the dead. We've all seen it. Therefore, being exalted, verse 33, to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, <laughs> when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? I mean, we've messed up. You're right. This guy did miracles. He did healings. Then he rose from the dead and we put him to death. What should we do? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children 
And to the people who live in Rochester and the people who live in Tenino and the people who live in Thurston County and Mason County and Lewis County and to all the people far off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000. Can you imagine 3,000 people getting baptized in a day? Where would you do that? How many rivers and lakes and ponds and swimming pools had to be going constantly? Right? I mean, this was, this city must have been upside down that day. The ecclesia was taking its shape. They were forming not around a tradition, not around a building, not around an attendance, not around anything. They were, they were excited about the fact that he's risen from the dead. He's alive. He masters what haunts me, death. I don't have to worry about it. Where do I sign up? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, that is God's big idea. And that is what you and I are a part of first and foremost. I know the church is not an underground bunker to protect us from hard world. You know, it needs to be a place of sanctuary and a place of rest, and it provides that for us. But first and foremost, that's not what we are. It's ahead, ahead of being a, a place of social action, ahead of being a place of building relationship, even ahead of serving each other um, and caring. First and foremost, we have to be part of something that's bigger than we can do on our own, and has to be bigger, has to be that big thing that God is up to. We're a movement of people centered on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go from there, okay? Thanks for letting me lay some groundwork today. I want to pray with you. Let's pray. Um, Keep your eyes closed, and before I pray, I just want to just proclaim a blessing upon you. I just feel like it's kind of backwards order to, to do a benediction, but I feel like this is what I, what I want to do today. May you experience the kind of peace that only comes from knowing that the bigger one than you chooses to love you, thinks about you day and night, about your future and about your hope. May you know that the things that burden upon your shoulders today that are heavy and cause you to feel weary and discouraged that the Lord's yoke is easy and his burden is light. That means that God wants to lift weight upon you, up, up off of you, and bear that weight while he hugs you, while he loves on you, while he guides you and fills you with life and with hope. May you know that, and I don't mean intellectually, but may as you go today and as you pillow your head tonight, you find peace that can't be explained by any way other than the supernatural intervention of the loving fingers of God. Now we pray, Lord, God, so be it. Would you just um, take that, that prophetic promise and play that out, Lord, in so many individual ways. I pray, God, right now over this place. First, God, for us as an assembly. That, Lord, I have told so many people since I've been here, less than a year, that this is the friendliest group of people I've ever encountered in my life. And it's so true. Thank you for that, Lord. Let us continue to be that. But underneath that, Lord, 
We stand on the resurrection. That's why we're friendly. Yes. That's why we smile at people, because there's hope that lives in our hearts. God, let that somehow make its way. It does, but let it make its way. I pray, God, that even just the simple things we do, like a fun day for children, would really be, speak to the hearts of people in our community. God, as we would now, um, as you would signal our hearts and say, you know, invite this coworker or invite this next door neighbor or invite your friend. Lord, may there be something that's bold in us that would overcome a concern that, oh, they don't want to come to church or they'll think I'm weird. God, grant to us the, the partnership of faith that we talked about because your word says that without faith, it's impossible to please you. Let there be faith, Lord, as we would invite people to come. God, I know that we have a vision for that day that's of a certain size, but God, your vision is bigger. We pray right now about the supernatural things that will happen in people's hearts that day that we don't know about. God, I pray too for us. I, I just ask God for your spirit to hover about your kids today. That Lord, where there's a need for, for provision today, for a door to open for a job, that God, you will be there. For Lord, where there is a, a doctor's prognosis involved and maybe it's not so good, God, I, I, I just ask God for the God of hope to be there, for the author and the finisher of life to be there. I want to thank you, Lord, for the recent good testimonies of healings I've heard in this place. I want to thank you, Lord, for taking the word cancer and making it be a past tense that's present in this room right now. Thank you, God, for that kind of touch. Lord, I, we ask for more of that. Lord, I want to pray for relationships that are somehow messed up, that, Lord, love would get in there somehow and stir things up that would just bring life. So, Lord, as we consider our future as a church family, speak to us, God. But Lord, just we just would say to you today as a group that it's going to be based upon the resurrection. The resurrection. No other philosophy will supplant that. We thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, would you stand to your feet?